Oh man, did you uh, did you hear about these uh, these texts going around that people are posting on Twitter and Facebook and all that? Where they're like the the quitting, like I quit type texts. Yeah, Seen pretty those. based. I I hear. Ver- I see. Very, 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 very uh, adequate for this moment in time when people are quitting on mass and stuff. I, I, you were telling me earlier you actually had some. Do you want to try to do maybe some dramatic renditions of these quitting texts? Ah, uh, yeah, sure. So, do you want to be the boss, or should I be a boss? I, I don't think either of us wants to be a boss, but should I take? Ooh, I don't know. Maybe we should like flip a coin or something. You know what? I'm gonna take one for the team. I'll be the boss. And I'll, I'll get, like, real mean and bossy about the boss, too. Okay. Like a okay. boss voice, you know? Should I do, like, right. a wheedling boss voice or, like, a tough guy boss voice? Mm, up to you. I feel like bosses are more wheedly than tough these days. Yeah, that's true. So uh-huh. I'm going to do, like, a whiny sort of, like, yeah, why won't you come to work? All right. Sounds good. Okay. Um, all right. So I, oh, I start this one. This one's <laughs> from, from uh, an anonymous person to my freaking boss. So here's the boss. Oh, please come to work at the slaughterhouse. Parentheses. We slaughter human beings. No, it is the weekend for me. Come here now. I don't care about your life. I quit and I'm going to kill you. Wow. Imagine going that hard on your boss. Respect. Oh, so good. I tell you, man, that's uh, that's some that's that's the struggle. The struggle is real right there. I don't have a boss right now, but I almost wish I did so that I could text that shit to them. Yeah. Here's another one from, uh, from William here. So, okay. <laughs> right. Hey, I know you're supposed to be off today, but we're short-staffed, so I really need you to come into the factory ASAP. Um, I told you several times I needed today off. I'm sick of having to set expectations for you. A chubby Bavarian kid fell into the chocolate river, and I need you to help him get out and clean the tubes. I am not coming in. Yes, you are. I'm going to play my little flute, and you're going to come and sing a fun song with your weird-ass friends. That's your job. I quit. I hope you chug a fizzy lifting drink and float into outer space and fucking die. Whoa, let's not be hasty. You could come in tomorrow, today in the afternoon. A girl is now a blueberry. <laughs> Man, that William really, uh, he's, he's skating on thin ice They've with his got, workers. I mean, this doesn't sound like an OSHA approved work site here. I don't know what the hell kind of operation, what kind of crackerjack operation they're running over there. Yeah, I don't know. Crazy man! I can't Good believe. Good luck to him. I can't believe how many of these very real uh, texts there are out there. Here's another one. Oh. All right, so I'm going to start as the boss again. Okay. All right. Job due now. No, won't. Why? Please come. I hate no. <laughs> this That's is... like every single one of the real quit texts the real in a nutshell. Ones. Yeah. I mean that really does like. Um... Yeah, break down all those texts into their constituent parts. Um, yep. Wow, you you love to see so much fucking job quitting these days, huh? Oh, I mean, it's so good. It's not as good as like say militant self organization, but it means something, right? It, it, it definitely means something. It's too big to not mean anything. I would say so. I mean, it's it's tantalizing. Obviously, the ones we've been reading are fake. Sorry. Oh yeah. Uh, totally for anyone fake. who thought they were real, yeah. uh, Willy Wonka's not real. He's not a real guy. He's not even a real there's boss. There's no such thing as Oompa Loompas, as far as we know. Um, 
<laughs> Halloween like really erased my mind. So uh, sorry in advance for you my got performance. A, you on got this a episode. case of the Halloweens, huh? Well, you know, I wasn't going to have a party. And then my friend fucking tricked me into doing one by saying she wanted to play and do Jesus and Mary Chain cover set. And then Ooh. she bailed. Um, but I'm, I'm not even mad because she tricked me into throwing a party and I managed to pull a pretty cool party out of my ass entirely. But did you get a replacement Jesus and Mary Chain? No, I did what? not. But I had um, lots of other bands. I had Hole. I had the Ramones. I had George Michael. Comrade, fucking amazing! I love uh, I love those Halloween cover shows. I actually played with one back in the day. Believe it or not, I know. I played. Uh, we did Creedence Clearwater Revival. It was fun. Pretty cool. Pretty I'm boomer. Sure my dad is sad. He missed it. <laughs> uh, um, we made it edgy by being dead. All right, all right. Yeah, no, it was pretty corny. Actually, we kicked ass. It was fun. Fuck, fuck all this. I <laughs> fuck Halloween. Horrible holiday. We hate it here at the Antifada. This is an anti-Halloween podcast um, because apparently you can't pod for a few days after it. Wow, I I almost just took off my headphones and walked away. <laughs> the one thing that breaks up this podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I will not stand for even <laughs> even as a joke tra- talking trash on Halloween. But where were we? Where were we with where this? We, um, we were trying to introduce the show. People I are think. quitting it's, their jobs. Yeah, it's cool. It's based. Um, hello and welcome to the Antifada. Where We're unrest is best. <clears throat> labor unrest is best, and it's happening. Um, but you know, <clears throat> as nice as these quit texts are. The fake ones as well as the real ones. The real ones um, are fucking, some of them are great. A bunch of people doing that on their own does not necessarily add up to a labor action. So what do we need to do instead? Well, I think uh, hundreds of thousands of workers have shown the other way to do it uh, with this uh, strike tober that we just finished. Um, then again, there's some real issues with that too, which is why I want to sit down and do this episode because you and me and Paul have been talking a lot about Striketober on the stream. Uh, but I don't think everybody that listens to the podcast listens to the stream. So we should kind of like synthesize what we were talking about, maybe do a little rundown of Striketober and what it means and look towards, I don't know, the future and how to turn this into something more than a fleeting moment of, uh, militancy for the American working class. Hell yeah. And you know what? It's going into strike Vember now. Hell yeah. So hopefully we'll keep that up into strike Sember. Oh God. It's perhaps gonna be- strike January <laughs> and, you know, maybe just striking forever. The decade of strikes. If 2020s, if the 2020s end up being in the decade of strikes, boy, that is going to be exciting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. should be considering how like. Through much of like the capitalist core, um, workers have been seeing declining or stagnating quality of life for so long. And meanwhile, capital is now international. And we all know how much richer billionaires got, not just in the last year and a half, two years, but in the last 40 or 50 years. So, mm-hmm. Well, that's what drove it the last time around, no? You're the historian around here. Wait, what last the, time? You the, mean the, the inequality of the, golden, of, the, the, of the Gilded Age? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I when we when we're talking about strike waves, it's like these things are cyclical, right? So you've got one going on now, 
obviously, but it's like obviously much smaller scale than things were. I think I read there were three million, um, three million workers on strike in 1971. In the 1930s, there was obviously a strike wave too, and then the, the 1890s there was. So these things, you know, they 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 come and go. And every time they come and go, they they do cause massive social changes because obviously everyone who talks about socialism or communism or anarchism that's oriented towards communism or oriented towards the working class, as we argue you should be, um, can have all the pie-in-the-sky dreams about a future world that they want. But there's been one huge element missing from that for quite a long time, and that is a uh, militant and self-activated working class. So without that element, you really, you don't have a social basis for any sort of program or platform or whatever. So that's what's, I think, most exciting about the potentials of this is that suddenly now people can start to see, you know, some wins, uh, some fightbacks against capital, and as we'll talk about later, fightbacks against unions. And also, like, you brought up the really good question, interesting question about what it means that, like, 4.6 million workers quit their jobs last month alone. I read a statistic that since January, three, uh, 30 million workers have quit their jobs in this country, and one-third of those workers didn't have another job lined up. So in the last, you know, seven, eight months, no, almost a year now, like uh, 10 million workers were just so pissed off about the conditions, working under the pandemic, the low pay and all that shit that they just walked off the job and said, fuck it, we're done. Which, again, means Hell something. Hell yeah. That means something. It, it, it's certainly a way to test, like, the subjective temperature of the class. Uh, they're taking a page from my book. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to doing shit like that because, you know, I'm just a... a, a PMC brat who will always have something to fall back on, AKA, you know, I'm going to live in my dad's mansion as everybody uh, knows that I do. And, uh, you know, like work at his fucking newspaper pornography factory or whatever. But uh, I, I'm not used to other people also doing that. So kudos to them and something, something is happening. It feels a little bit like a missed opportunity. I must say, have all of these people doing this kind of uh, labor action individually mm. when they could be linking together into something resembling, I don't know, a general strike. <laughs> well, all that hashtag talk of general strike. <laughs> all that talk of hashtag general strike was like exactly the kind of um, dipshit utopianism that I was referring to before. It's like. There's no organic connection right now between the quote-unquote left and uh, the working class. They're very small anyways, right? So all of the general strike hashtag stuff is all very much posturing. But again, if you start to see a, uh, a militant class movement, then all of a sudden there's your social basis. Maybe not a national general strike, but could you get you know, people together to shut down a city? Maybe in the next four or five years you could do that. But again, without... That social basis, it's just pie in the sky, you know? They got to talk to each other is what you're saying. But, yeah, I mean, so there, there's, like, there, there's been something that we've been sort of implicit on, I think, about on this show for maybe the whole time or at least many, many years. Um, and But it's not, like, I don't think it's 100% clear or, or valid to, to everybody. But, like, I think a lot of people on the left, certainly uh, many Marxists and Marxist-Leninists, only 
see the working class, only, can only view the working class when it begins to attain some sort of political identity, right? When the working class like becomes something, either institutionally or organizationally or whatever. Um, and also class, class struggle, too. A lot of people are like, well, the class struggle happens occasionally, but only during strike time. I think the reality of it, and I think the correct analysis of how capitalism works, is that the class struggle is ongoing all the time. And that the working class doesn't have to be organized under a party in order to like constituent to be a constituent part of the of the poles of class society. You know what I mean? And yeah. so when you see these thirty million workers, when you see just mass quitting of jobs, moving to other ones or not at all, uh, what you're seeing is a sort of it's exaggerated, but it's the sort of um, quiet class struggle that happens day in and day out uh, within the contradictions of class society. Yeah, you know what? Maybe we'll come back to the idea of the party because that is something I started to think about while I was trying to figure out common threads throughout everything we're going to talk about in yeah. this episode. Yeah, um, when we talk about it all, we're going to have a nice, good, casual, classic Antifada app. So... I see a lot of strikes on this here list. Where do we even begin? Well, I think that we um, we need to kind of look at the conditions that brought us here, try to understand why this is happening right now. And I think the answer is that there's both an objective side to it and a subjective side, right? So object- Go on. Uh, objectively, right, you've had uh, a very chaotic last uh, couple of years for capital, combined with a period of 13, 14 years of uh, low profitability on capital. Um, You have uh, this pandemic that came through and obviously disrupted labor in general (laughs) in the labor market. Uh, You had during that time 700,000 Americans plus probably who have died from a a deadly uh, disease. You've also had millions upon millions of people who have simply dropped out of the workforce completely. I think we've lost a few points off the labor participation index, which means millions upon millions of people just aren't participating in labor anymore for various reasons. You also have uh, older workers, people who are in their, you know, maybe early to mid 60s, a lot of them being like, um, fuck this, you know, I'm close to retirement. Housing prices have meant that my house has gone up in enough value that, you know, I can just ride out the next few years uh, before I get Social Security. I'm not going back, you know, to die of a plague. Um, a lot of people died, too. A lot of people died. I mean, of the 700,000 people that we know of that died of the disease, not all of those people were old. We know that. And, you know, this is America, so old people, chances are you're going to still be working. Yeah, for sure. If you have no choice, you're still out there working. You know, and so, like, the other big thing, of course, too, is with the disruptions in um, school over the last couple of years, a lot of parents have had to uh, quit their jobs or scale back on their jobs to do uh, social reproductive labor, right? Mm -hmm. So you're missing... Like, the, basically, the objective conditions is a supply and demand issue on the one hand, where you've got, like, obviously not enough workers to fill a whole bunch of jobs. Uh, and then also you have that compounding what has already been, like, a relatively shitty um, market for labor for a long time in this country where, again, stagnating or declining 
uh, real wages and conditions for American workers. So you have that on the one hand, and then you have the subjective conditions on the other, which is that for the last two years, if you were working through the pandemic, and most people did, um, you were an essential worker, right? You were on the front lines. You were out there doing the work so society could continue. You were sacrificing potentially your life, but certainly your health and well-being in order to go in and work on the front lines during a pandemic to move yeah. goods around, to like retail those goods. And to... we're not talking about all the people working from home. No, I mean, but those people are part of the of the quitting thing, actually, because I, I hear a lot of the stories about why 30 million people have quit their jobs is because a lot of white collar workers, who many of whom are working class um, still, um, were told that they couldn't work from home anymore. And after they discovered what life is like without commutes and everybody realized that they could just get, get as much productivity done as if they were in the office when the bosses are like, okay, well, lockdown's over. We got the vaccine or whatever. Why don't you start commuting two and a half hours a day to work any, uh, again and like waste 10, 12 hours of your life doing that? People are like, fuck you. And they yeah. fucking quit. I get it. It's fucking bullshit. Like there's no reason a lot of jobs have to go into the office other than this kind of like Foucauldian control that they want to exert over you. Totally. Yeah. hundred percent. So like, um, if you were remember, and I, we talked about this at the time when you had, uh, the, the virus first, first hit. So that was in what, uh, February, March of 2000, was it? Or, or I'm sorry, 2020. I, I got my. What is time? What is time? When it, <laughs> so when it, so when the the pandemic when the lockdown first hits, um, there in was the a, before times in the before times in the very end of the before times or the very beginning of the new times the new dawn. Um, if you remember, millions of workers just refused to go to work. They were like, "Fuck this! I'm not dying. We don't know how bad this thing is. You know, I'm immunocompromised. I'm elderly. I'm not going into work. I'm not going to go to the Amazon logistics warehouse and move these goods around. I'm not going to go jump in a truck and drive stuff. I'm not going to go into the factory. I'm not sure as fuck not going to go into the meatpacking plant. Those were fucking abattoirs in more Oy. ways than one. Um, so in order, so there was a giant propaganda campaign. This is where the essential workers thing uh, came from." It was basically like a full court press in the part of capital and the state in order to get what was basically like an unorganized mini general strike of American workers to get them back producing value again. Get mm -hmm. back in there. You are an essential worker. People who for decades have been shit on, told that they're garbage, that they're replaceable, that they deserve $12 an hour, all of a sudden are told by everybody, by the media apparatus, everybody, you're essential workers. You're on the front lines. You make this society run. And that combined with some hazard pay that bumped in for some people, maybe a couple more dollars an hour, got essential workers back on the job. Like continued this this accumulation process, got the goods to where they needed to get, uh, allowed people to keep consuming, and allowed capital to make, keep making profits. So people who worked on the front lines of that, who have worked on the front lines of that for the last couple of years, now all of a sudden, when they have leverage, they can combine those objective conditions with the fact that people are fucking pissed. That's the subjective shit. People are fucking pissed. You know, the American working class has has had reasons to be pissed for decades, but I feel like this is kind of a straw that broke the back, and that's why you're seeing tens of millions of people, you know, uh, operating in this interesting and lovely way. 
Oh, well, thinking back to our conversation with Gabe Wynant, um, the category of essential worker pretty much unanimously makes like hospital workers laugh now because oh, what I'm they sure. found out through throughout the pandemic was being called an essential worker. Does it mean that you get paid more? It doesn't mean that you get actually treated like a hero. It just means that you will may not be excused because yes. we need you. Yeah. So people, workers are realizing that too. Um, but how, how real is this labor shortage perhaps from the, when, when we hear the loudest voices, like nobody wants to work anymore. Is it actually that nobody wants to work or is it that they don't want to pay what the market demands right now in order to hire labor? Remember that freak out like on social media four, five, six months ago? Again, time means nothing, right? We're still in the in the after times when time is just a fleeting um, specter, a spook. But do you remember when there were all those signs that people were posting on social media like, we're closed because we can't find anybody to work. And what, was, what that was blamed on by parts of the press and by obviously the Republican Party was the very, very uh, generous pandemic unemployment insurance that people were getting. Yeah, but, and that lump sum of 1200 bucks, You yeah. can really live high on the hog for a while on that. They literally were saying that people are still like have this money as though, I don't know, living is free in America. Totally insane shit. Like, um, and so then the argument was, and this happened in a bunch of states, cut off the pandemic insurance early. Get these people back into the workplace. It didn't work. It absolutely uh-huh. didn't work at that point in time because the same conditions prevail then as prevail now, which is that if people have a choice and they're scared and they, a lot of people are for good reason, they're not going to go back to work. And also, again, they're pissed off. And with if they do go back to work and they see that there's this labor shortage, they're going to start demanding things and they're going to hold out for that now. So here's a question then. Can these businesses actually not afford to pay what the market demands for labor right now? Because, you know, we live in a capitalist marketplace, supply and demand. That's like business 101. Can they actually not afford it? Or is it just maybe like a capital strike of sorts where they're refusing to raise wages and benefits? Yeah, I think it's I think it's like a little bit of both, because remember, while capitalist profits, the massive capitalist profits seems huge and the the CEOs and billionaires are making tons more. You have a highly competitive environment in most capitalist industries. And so the margins that that these companies work with in order to make a profit sufficient to make their shareholders happy is very slim, right? And also they're competing with one another. So it's also like a staring competition between capitalists. Like you imagine like the people at the Gap you know, and then the people at Old Navy or whatever, each one of them is trying to hold out and keep the price of labor down because if, if they're able to keep cheaper workers and the other guy, you know, has to pay two, three, four more dollars an hour, then it's going to help them out competitively. So there's that. And I, you know, the, the, the big part, too, I think, is that, again, since the full court offensive um, of the capitalist class in this country starting in the 1960s, I'm sorry, yeah early 1970s, let's say, right? You have had um, the ruling class take for granted that uh, workers are pliable, that uh, that any class struggle to the ex- extent it exists can be put down by threatening to move those jobs to another place. Um, you have almost like, I feel like the, the, the capitalist class feels like it's their birthright 
to have cheap workers who will work for anything, you know, and, you know, wages stagnating or declining. So I think this is such a shock because for most of these people's lives, they've never lived in a situation where workers had any bargaining power whatsoever. You know, unions in the, in the private sector are down to 7% right now. And so, you know, maybe to the extent that wages have gone up, it's, it's been in industries like tech, you know, so if you're like a graphic designer uh, in like advertising or marketing or whatever, or if you're a, a programmer, you can still make like decent money and demand high wages. But for the vast majority of work that happens in this uh, country, uh, blue collar, pink collar or white collar, right? Capital is used to having an abject and pliable working class. And so I think that there was a real shock for them over the last six months or so to realize that like this birthright of having like an un, unlimited, uh, un, untra untrammeled um, reserve army of labor, right? That, that that was coming to an end came quite as a shock to them. Yeah, a, a lot of these jobs are also in sectors like service, retail, and care work that cannot be outsourced and they cannot be easily automated either. Although they're always, they're always threatening to automate these jobs. If workers don't work for minimum wage as if they wouldn't have done that already, right. If it would save them like two cents an hour. Um, but you know, I guess in a certain sense, these workers have a kind of leverage because you know, like you can't outsource the, the, the Tallahassee Wendy's to, right. You know, workers working remotely, yeah. you know, you can't outsource a, a hospital that exists in a certain location. Right. Although I'm, I'm sure they've tried their best to do whatever they can. Oh, but. there's like stories you hear every once in a while where they're trying to like using 5G, they're going to have remote surgery and the surgeon will be in like Bahrain and the, yeah, yeah. the patient will be lying on the table and it'll be actually like a robot cutting them up or whatever. I don't, they, again, this is like the... The, the big discussion, um, and I was joking about this recently, how uh, for the last five, six, seven, eight years, uh, there have been these predictions of automation. And this goes to, to Jason Smith, our episode with him, and also Aaron uh, Beninov um, about automation and, uh, and productivity and shit. There have been these claims that uh, automation and robots are going to come and they're going to wipe out, absolutely wipe out the trucking industry. Trucking is a dying industry. If you're going into trucking, you better, you know, get set to go into some job training program because those jobs are absolutely disappearing. We're going to have self-driving trucks. You know, millions upon millions of people are going to lose their jobs. And the exact opposite, happened, opposite thing happened in this pandemic is we ran out of truckers. Ran out of truckers in Europe, ran out of truckers in the UK, and we don't have enough here in the United States. Oops. So, like, there, there's almost like a propaganda function and that automation shit. Uh, part of it's propaganda, and part of it is like tech trying to justify how much fucking money it has floating around, and say, and, and also like capital in general trying to imagine that it has like a bright future where like anything good could happen. <laughs> so now they're like searching for um, for tons of truckers right now and don't have enough. The exact opposite of what they said. So you always got to be careful when you hear that automation shit because just like you said, right. Um, there's always like the counter incentive, which is being able to find pliable, cheap labor. Will there be more automation uh, in fast food and shit? Probably if wages keep going up, but th that's not a reason to not do anything. Yeah. So I am kind of intrigued by this article that, I mean, there's many versions of this article going around, but basically 
a Florida man applied to 60 entry level jobs in September and got one interview. That's not what you usually hear about Florida man doing. Oh, no. Ups to Florida man. This time he he did something kind of socially useful and interesting. Um, He decided to test the claims of businesses. You know, I I'm thinking these are especially businesses run by like the small business tyrants who are complaining the loudest about how nobody wants to work. Wah, wah, wah. So he decided to apply to a whole bunch of jobs and only entry level jobs that he was qualified for by the way, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm looking at this article. Basically he received a few follow-ups and one interview out of 60 in a whole month. So what's up with that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that gets the question, like how much of this is real and how much of it is like kind of a media concoction, but it's like, I don't know. It's similar to the, um, the supply chain shit, right? Did you follow the supply chain, the treats meltdown, the I mean, treats apocalypse? Yeah. yeah, you could. I don't think you could ignore it, right? Like you had um, shelves that were empty of certain particular food products, you know, a month or so ago. And you had uh, right wingers and disingenuous pundits and post leftists or whatever freaking out about like how Biden caused this shortage and how this is like the Democrats or whatever. They were using some real shortages in order to like you'd score political points against Joe Biden, which whatever, fuck them. But that's not the, the thing is that that's not like an adequate way to look at it, right? It's not like um, this supply chain meltdown that we're having means that there's going to be no goods left. It means that there's all these bottlenecks that exist. And so one week it might be the Toll Brothers cookies that you really enjoy. Uh, but the other week it might be microprocessors that uh, GM needs in order to produce vehicles, right? So there's like this like low level of um, supply chain disruption and chaos happening right now. That's like a rolling one. I mean, it's, a similar, it's similar with this too. I mean, a lot of it is geographically specific, I'm sure. So maybe Florida has like in the person, the area that this person's in has a very specific sort of labor market within it. Um, And we know that like statistically there are shortages of jobs, but they're not everywhere and they're not in every industry. Um, And I certainly so I think the other side of that is a propaganda aspect. Right. Like there are capitalists and there are politicians who are trying to basically they they want particular policies in place. They want policies like you saw in Wisconsin. And now they're going to try in Ohio and a bunch of other states, which is to allow teenagers to work more hours. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Bring back child labor. This is what the, could possibly go wrong. This is the absolute desperation, again, of a country that's been addicted to like an unlimited pool of abject and pliable workers. And when it flips over, it's all of a sudden, well, the 14-year-olds can only work till 6 p.m. on a school night now. What if we let them work till 9? Like that's literally what you're talking about here. There's like they, the bill is to so that um, on weekends, uh, 14, 15-year-olds can work from 6 a.m. till 6 p- or 9 p.m. We're going to have to bring back the factory acts. Yeah, so, you know, there's the, so these 30 million people who have quit, 4.6 million last month is an indicator of something and again it's both objective and subjective and i think it's an exciting time for us you rightfully asked the question like what do we do with that i mean i think you know it's one thing to take the temperature of the class and the class struggle it's another to like propose something to the patient but um maybe we can segue to talking about strikes because one of the great things from the gabe winnan episode that we talked about 
was how uh, the New Deal uh, and the New Deal regime of accumulation created kind of a two-tier labor system in the United States. It had uh, secure, um, pensioned, well-provided, and relatively stable um, union employment in like the big capital sectors and in, in uh, big industries and in manufacturing and transportation or whatever. And these, of course, tended to be largely white and largely male. Um, and so that, so the, this sort of union slash capital regime was the way that America got out of giving sort of universal programs like you've seen in Europe and Asia and elsewhere. It was like a privatized welfare system, right, within the unions. And left outside of that were you know, tens of millions of workers who were precarious, uh, who didn't have these good benefits, and also basically, like, served a different function in the in the economy, um, and also obviously got, like, different um, material conditions. So yeah. what happens in the 1970s with the crisis of capital is you start to see that core start to erode, and then you remember from Gabe's book how things like care work, which had been sort of outside that, but come to, come to play more and more of a role uh, in the economy itself, as like the center starts to hollow out, and you have more and more people in this sort of second tier. Um, what's happening in the in the strike wave is really really interesting because you see that despite the objective and subjective conditions, capital when it comes to union contracts, signing like a four six year union contract, it's still going ruthless. They're still going hard. They're trying to get like really good concessionary contracts, um, you know, cutting benefits, uh, creating new tiers for like second classes of workers, um, uh, wages that don't keep up with inflation. And inflation was like 5.6% last month. So in the, in the private sector, I'm sorry, in the non-union sector, you're seeing real wage gains by workers, like real and serious ones, going up above inflation, which is pretty incredible. Uh, but then in the union sector, you're starting to see capital continue its offensive. And what, what, what that leads me to believe is that um, the, the companies that have long-term contracts with workers are anticipating that this uh, labor market situation, the shortage of workers, is not going to last. Right? They're on the same program. They're like, okay, well, maybe in this industry without a union, without collective bargaining, workers are getting 5%, 10% more than they were six months ago. But we're looking six years down the road. We think that this supply mar- this uh, labor supply thing and also the, um, the, the, the supply chains uh, chaos, we think that's going to end and we're going to go back to like normal profitability. We need to keep sticking it to the workers. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen, again, a sort of like from the remnants of the people who had had secure employment and who have been attacked for the last 40, 50 years, you see capital still attacking them because it sees an opportunity or it doesn't, it doesn't see, uh, see that this sort of thing is going to last. It's again, it's used to a pliable um, and malleable uh, and supine working class. Yeah. It's kind of like how my landlord is willing to give us all like two months off of the rent this past year but they would never, ever write a rent reduction into our actual contract. Exactly. To our actual lease. Because they're betting on the fact that the market's going to change and then they don't want to have agreed to anything unfavorable. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's again, this, like, this many decades long trend and capital still figures that it can get out of this with maybe like a year or so of wage rises. Uh, I think personally, and this is why I think all of this is, is pretty interesting and excited i'm not sure that it's going to end 
I think you saw one of the things you saw in the pandemic was this um, frantic attempt after the the lockdown and all the need for the PPE and everything showed us how little important stuff is made on this side of the world anymore. Uh, we saw how quickly um, the capital in the state was trying to reshore a lot of these, tightening up a lot of these supply chains and bring shit back to the United States. So I feel like maybe we're kind of at the end point of that of that cheap labor regime. I think yeah. maybe this might continue, and I think that maybe that's really, really good news for us because we see what happens when all of a sudden now you know, workers aren't afraid that their jobs are going to fly overseas immediately when they see other people around them quitting and getting better jobs, when they're honestly willing and able to stand up to the bosses and say, go fuck yourself, you know, like those texts that we read. Yeah, well, not all strikes are created equal, though. Uh, I feel like we should talk about some of these. Uh, You've got you've got a few different kinds of strikes down on this sheet. What do you want to start with? Because I see a story about workers rebelling over vaccine mandates, which we've talked a little bit about on the stream. I find that questionable in terms of is it recuperable for any kind of socialist workers movement. Um, And on the other side, we've got uh, because this is I guess it's political, although it's not that straightforward because different workers have different reasons for wanting to refuse the vaccine. Um, Some are just like straight up right wing culture war bullshit reasons. Others are uh, perhaps even less understandable. Like people just have these bundles of weird ideas, especially in America. It's just this yeah. like, don't tread on me shit. It doesn't necessarily map on to the left, right political spectrum. Right, right. And of course, a lot of people of color have a good reason to distrust the government trying to do medical shit to them based on what's happened in the past. But uh, there's that going on. And then there's, you know, other kinds of political labor action, like the workers at Netflix Mm -hmm. who are mad at them for broadcasting uh, transphobia, obviously, and the Dave Chappelle thing. And I'm sure there's other examples that have kind of flown under the radar. Uh, And then we see, (laughs) maybe I don't even want to bring this in, but there was another article I saw where, you know, the Zoomers are just demanding that their jobs be uh, woke or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and it's it, that's kind of hard to parse. It's harder to parse because it's sort of it sort of dovetails with like actual. Well, I don't want to say actual like, you know, this this matters, too. You shouldn't have Netflix broadcasting transphobia or whatever. It's all yeah. part of the same movement. Um but like along with more like meat and potatoes issues, like time off and stuff. So like, what do, what do we make of all of this? Uh, are these strikes becoming political in any kind of uh, coherent way? And what's, what, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, especially yeah. with the vax mandates, like yeah. mm, I'm skeptical. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I, I would not certainly not argue that they can be recuperated directly into a sort of socialist project. Uh, but I think they're interesting. And the reason why I, I put I juxtapose the, the Netflix strikes and the vaccine mandate is that on two sides of the political spectrum, you can call them left or right, or you can call them woke and anti-woke. People were so ready to claim both of these things for their own and say that the other one was disgusting and there was like a, it was degeneracy or it was like a misuse of what strikes are supposed to be or whatever, which I think misses the, the larger point, the important point. 
which is that uh, with this and the other things that we're talking about, the work site is becoming for all ends of the political spectrum a site of struggle again and also becoming political again. Now, again, how that breaks out, if, if we had like a, a general strike over, you know, Trump not getting on the Republican ballot in, in 20. 24, you know, I wouldn't say that that's recuperable into like a, a positive program for the class. But certainly, I think it's interesting that for the workers themselves, they're starting to see work in the workplace as sites of economic, but also of political struggle. So it's like it's again, it's it's one of these barometers that we can look at and we can try to be like step out a little bit from like the crazy woke anti woke culture war stuff from the, you know, Democrats believe in science on the one hand and the Republicans are all like no mandates and my freedom on the other. If we step back from that a little bit, I think it's an interesting development and I think it's one that like is important because obviously the workplace has to become a site of struggle. It has to be a site of contestation more than it already is just with the capital labor relation. It needs to be understood by the workers themselves as a place where one can act. See, this is why I keep coming back to the idea of the party, because, as we know, uh, the actions just of, of workers or of unions uh, don't necessarily have a positive ideological content to them. A lot of the time, it's just about, you know, the meat and potatoes issues, or sometimes ideology comes out in all sorts of random and fucked up ways, like with the the people not wanting to get the vaccine and what a party is supposed to do if it's doing its job, a workers party, a socialist workers party is to, you know, cohere a, a politics mm -hmm. that for everything that's happening and tie it together, make it make sense and make it all point in a certain direction, uh, preferably towards socialism. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's I was on um, This Is Revolution podcast the other day, and uh, we had a really good discussion about like what people do with this. And I think that that's like essential. Uh, as people know, I'm not like a big I'm not very good at like calling for platforms and stuff like that. I'm not like the most positive political program guy myself. Uh, I, I, I assume that or I, I hope that like the militants and the struggles will figure that shit out themselves, I guess. But, like, the important thing, again, is that something that was missing isn't missing anymore, which is for all the talk of the left and all the talk of socialism and democratic socialism and communism and anarchism or whatever. You have all these people with grandiose plans and visions, but this missing piece of a militant working class wasn't there. Um, there was certainly, I mean, you could, you could have gone and, and, uh, and showed up at any gate of any workplace in the entire country with uh, your pamphlet or whatever calling for revolutionary socialism at any time, but that sort of changes when you start. The possibilities change <clears throat> when all of a sudden now you have this mood that strikes and these conditions. It strikes? Ooh. Uh. Did you, have you been following the, uh, the John Deere strike at all? No, tell me about it. Oh, it's it's really really fascinating. So this is another big thing um, that that it's important to talk about because it's not 
you know, people talk about Striketober, and you had a lot of people online who were just like, go UAW, go IATSE, unions are so good and powerful and strong or whatever. And that's like a very, it's very common, but it's a very sort of shallow way to understand this, uh, the strike wave, because in each instance with the big strikes that we've seen, I'm not sure about the nurses, but it, with the, the Kellogg strike, with the Carpenter strike, with the potential IATSE strike that never happened, and the John Deere strike, the reason why the strike actually happened was because uh, the rank and file of these uh, locals, of these unions, came together and did shit like 98% strike authorization vote, like at IATSE, 90% at John Deere, basically um, pushing the union to not take concessions anymore. That's the reason why this strike wave has happened. The most glaring example is the Washington Carpenter strike. Did, did you hear about what happened at the end of that? Tell me. Oh, my God, this is crazy. So... A, uh, uh, a militant rank-and-file group uh, called the Peter Maguire Group. People might not know this, but Peter Maguire was the, um, the socialist founder of uh, the Carpenters Union. Uh, he was sort of like the anti-Sam Gompers. He was fighting for industrial unionism and socialism, and he was a very fucking based figure in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, the rank-and-file in Washington State formed the uh, Peter Maguire Group, which started to organize like a long time ago, like a year ago, in order to stop concessionary contracts. And so in that time, the workers came together and they gave information out to other rank and file people. They set up like talks and stuff like that. And they really importantly like communicated from as rank and file to rank and file across all of the jobs and said, we can't keep taking these concessions. So a couple of months ago, when the union sat down with the uh, General Contractors Association and was like, uh, yeah, we'll just do a normal concessionary contract. We'll take like a 2% raise, which is under inflation, but whatever. We'll give up some more on health care. Um, the, the union felt like it had to put up a pro forma. Um, it, it had to do like a, 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 the, a, a, there had to be an agreement for the rank and file for this. So the rank and file shut it down. And then they did a huge strike, strike authorization. And so basically the rank and file forced the local to go on strike. Um, they actually, I think they voted down the contract four different times. After they went on strike and they went back with another tentative agreement, the workers shot it down again. So this is like, these are, this is workers fighting not just capital, the General Contractors Association, but also fighting against their union leadership, which is trying to push concessions down their throat. And they shot it down after the strike. They shot down another tentative agreement, the fifth one. And then the Carpenters International came in and said that there was fraud and that they couldn't trust the election. And they liquidated the fucking local. Hey. They came in and liquidated the leadership of the local, put it under trusteeship, basically to try to like, I, I, I suppose I can only imagine, to try to overturn the rank and file, put, uh, like uh, rejecting this contract one more time. This is the struggle that people are fighting. This is what the John Deere UAW workers are fighting as well. The UAW has been shoving concessionary contracts down workers' throats for 40 or 50 years with no recourse whatsoever. So the John Deere workers were also fighting against the frankly extremely corrupt UAW, one that's completely in bed with capital, one that's gone from, I think in 1980, they had 300,000 workers and now they're down to 50,000. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a crazy situation because you're starting to see a real rank and file pushback, uh, like a, a systemic one in this country for the first time in a long time. That's really exciting. That's amazing. 
I mean, what is driving this rank and file pushback after so many years of the the old guard labor bureaucracy just plodding along and trying to make deals with capital to preserve labor peace no matter how shitty they were for the workers? I I think that for large swaths of the the working class, not just union, non-union as well, but certainly the unions, uh, the membership is staring at um, the end, you know, the, the terminal point, the point where the concessions get to be so much that they can't live anymore. You know, that's what they were saying in the Washington state areas. Like one of the things they were fighting for was money from the contractors for parking and gas, because some of them have been gentrified and pushed so far out of tech centrist tech centric Seattle that they're commuting two hours to and two hours back from work every day. And haven't seen a substantial raise in years. So I think that it's there's these subjective factors. You get to the point where like even especially after the pandemic, I feel like a line has been crossed. I feel like you're at workers have been pushed for so long. Workers have had their union lead them by the hand uh, to the edge of the abyss. And now they're they, they they feel no. They feel the compulsion to fight back. They have no choice but to go up against capital and also the union. I mean, Americans are very cucked by capitalism, as, you know, people are all over the world, uh, but especially here. But, like, yeah, I I think the more I I study about history, the more I really believe that you can only squeeze people so much before they eventually fight back. And, you know, a red line in the sand is obviously, can people live? Not even can people live a dignified life, right? Because that went out the window starting in the 70s. But can they even just live and reproduce themselves from day to day and generation to generation? And, you know, like, look at the fucking birth rates. The answer is no these days. So what's going to happen? Something has to give. Either they're just going to exterminate all the workers they no longer need or the workers are going to fight back or, like, I don't know. We're just we're going to have some kind of rupture because it seems like the. Well, certainly neoliberal capitalism is in crisis. This particular phase of capitalism is in crisis and cannot continue. Um, I guess it's an open question as to whether it's going to now reorder itself into an even worse version of capitalism. Maybe this kind of uh, nationalistic uh, public, private, state capitalism that we mm. keep talking about uh, in reference to like the Chinese model that seems to be sort of ascendant, or if it is once again socialism or barbarism time, and uh, maybe we'll see some kind of positive movement in that direction. I don't know. Like I'm afraid to say anything hopeful or optimistic <laughs> right now wow. because I'm so used to being sad and disappointed i mean again it's like the missing ingredients uh, ingredient with anything we want to do is is workers prepared to stand up against capital and when i say i don't know if like there's probably a lot of uh you know normal listeners who have been listening to us for a while listening to this but if you are like a new listener or whatever i'm not anti-union per se our argument here, our understanding, our analysis of how unions work in capitalist society uh, is such that basically uh, unions, by and large, most of the time, like at least for the last decade or so, unions have been like, fine, 
You know, this is what we got. Collective bargaining. We can, like, pay our dues and we can maybe get something back. In the quiet times, you're like, well, we have to defend these unions because it's the last thing we have before, you know, the actual, like, the absolute um, end of, of, our, of our power as a class. But in moments like this, what you're seeing is that the unions themselves operate as a break on the class struggle. You know, that's what the UAW has been doing with the John Deere workers. The, U, uh, the Carpenters Union has been doing that with the Carpenters. IATSE, which had that 98% strike authorization, uh, didn't even end up going on strike. The workers wanted to strike and they wouldn't even do it. They used, the, so they used the strike authorization as leverage to get like a, a fine contract or whatever. But the workers, the, the stage uh, hand workers at IATSE wanted to strike because they, like everybody else, are pissed off. And they want to claw back some of the things they've given up after the years. And the, and the leadership saw that strike authorization and said, we'll just use this as leverage to maybe get like another 50 cents an hour or whatever. I mean, and it's crazy. That after that insane, insanely timed PR of Alec Baldwin accidentally killing a woman on set because the producers of this movie, including him, were using scab fucking labor, uh, that didn't that didn't make it happen. Like, come on. I mean, there's no there's. There's nobody to connect the dots, right? There are some, like, isolated socialist publications. There's the DSA, which, as we know, is, like, a a pretty decent-sized organization but doesn't really have a lot of um, entryways into, you know, workplaces and whatever around the country. Without socialists, communists, whatever, coming together and pointing these things out, the capitalist media is going to be like, well, what a tragedy, you got to really feel for them. I guess they shouldn't, uh, you know, they, the, things went really sideways in this. But, you know, it was a tragic mistake when, in fact, if you look at that shooting, it was, uh, it, it was like built into the way that that industry runs, which is that um, there had to be a speed up. You know, that the capital had to get more out of the workers. They had to get the product done. There's more and more like um, uh, competition between different studios. And so they do these low budget things and they try to keep it really, really low. Use scab labor when you can or whatever and shoot for 14, 16 hours a day. That's what killed that person. Yeah. Right. Is like, yeah. yeah, the production they had process. literally just walked off the job due to concerns over safety issues, including gun safety mm-hmm. when that happened. And the IATSE leadership still said no strike. We don't have to strike. So then what do, what do we do? Because, <laughs> like, this is the way that most people envision um, labor action through a union. Um, I guess it doesn't have to be a traditional kind of union. It could be more uh, a, a more autonomous form of unionism, although, like, I'm thinking like uh, the the IWW, although I'm sure they have their own issues as well and are kind of uh, on the downswing since the since, since the days of the train hop and hobos. I think that might have been their peak, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I'm probably going to get some angry messages from IWW people. You guys are cool. Uh, but like what, what do workers do? Because there, there are some encouraging signs, at least on broader cultural level. Like I have this statistic uh, from a Gallup poll released in the beginning of July showing that 68% of Americans approve of labor unions, which is higher than it's been in years and up significantly from the 48% approval in 2009 during the throes of the Great Recession. Uh, 
Uh, also, it showed that 47% of Republicans said they approved of unions. That's interesting. The highest since 2003, and 90% of Democrats did. So clearly there's an interest on the part of both union and non-union workers, and also the number of non-union workers saying that they would like to join a union, given the opportunity, yeah. has gone up. Um, but then you see these unions uh, fucking up. So what well, well, what is to be done? You have the really interesting independent Amazon union that Chris Smalls and company, rank-and-file workers, are trying to organize on Staten Island, uh, yeah. which is interesting because part of the reason that Bessemer, uh, the union drive down in Alabama, uh, didn't succeed. The large, the largest reason maybe is that it was seen by the people there. It wasn't just the political um, pushback from like the governor and all the propaganda from Capitol. It's that people thought that this was an outside uh, institution coming in and trying to sell them something. What yeah, you're I mean, also it, Amazon spent millions of dollars trying to crush it. Yeah, but but people, but, but workers there didn't have enough buy-in to believe that uh, the the international union could do that for them, or that they really represented them. You start, you see this grassroots struggle, this independent union struggle, struggle havoc and happening in um, Staten Island is completely different. This might be the breakthrough here because it's workers themselves. I think out of like the 4,500 workers there, 2,000 have already signed cards. Like 40% of them have signed cards yeah. uh, to, to form a union. And when you have people self-organizing, self-activated, uh, you have a completely different dynamic because it's like the workers themselves, obviously. So that's that's pretty exciting. I mean, I think for like people who listen to this podcast and have unions, and I know there's a lot of them, Certainly the Peter Maguire group for the uh, carpenters in Washington state is very, very inspirational, right? Because they're, they're basically like starting a workers organization within the union in order to push for, um, you know, an end to these concessionary contracts and to potentially like, you know, just go beyond in general, the, the, the union leadership. Um, but yeah, I mean, like with those, those stats that you quoted, that's the really interesting thing. And that's the thing that's really exciting is that, Capital is very scared of a win. You, they, they talked about this in the Wall Street Journal. Capital is really scared that workers start winning shit. Because, you know, if, if, if you're just, you know, you're, you're thinking about a union campaign, but you see the way that everyone's been treated for so many decades, you see how quickly uh, the, that capital is able to smash up these, these movements, right? You're like, well, a union would be nice, but it could never work for me. When you start to see like spreading strike waves and you start to see actual victories like we've seen at UAW, I mean, they, they haven't, they're, they're voting right now on the tentative contract, but like even if the workers accepted after the two week strike, it would be considerably better than it would have been had they not gone on strike. 10% raises they would get. And also, they, there was going to be a third tier for new hires, and they got rid of that one. Now, some of those workers are saying, like the rank and file saying, let's go back, let's strike again uh, to get rid of the entire second tier to begin with. But if you start to see victories like this, I think this could take on a life of its own because it matches with the subjective conditions right now of the working class, which is pissed off, pissed off. And I should mention um, that this wave of strikes and this wave of politicized strikes really started before the pandemic. Mm. Remember? Remember the teachers' strikes? Oh, yeah. Starting around 2018. Those are pretty uh, autonomous. A lot of these were very autonomous. They came from the rank and file. Uh, also very uh, social justice-minded, like outside of the narrow uh, benefits of the workers, which, you know, there's, there's no 
conflict between that and the needs of the students. And they understood that and mm-hmm. their communities understood that. Um, and they won some real victories going back to 2018. Um, Chicago Teachers Union a couple of years before that. Yep. Yep. And also in 2020, we saw very high profile labor action from the NBA. When mm. players walked off to protest the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. Was that the one that Obama had to come in and talk everybody yeah. out of? Uh, strike breaker Obama. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> yeah, he so, came in and was like, bad idea, guys. Work within the system. We can sort this out. Yeah, he of finally, he that. That, that's the thing that finally got him to take a break from fucking jet skiing with Richard Branson <laughs> yeah. and intervene in, in the world again. Yeah, and is enjoying his $20 million Martha's Vineyard mansion. What a scumbag. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my point is, it was already brewing and the pandemic just kind of turbocharged it. Yeah. Um, also worth noting that, I mean, obviously Amazon is hoping that they can just bury it in infinite delays but uh the a court did rule that they have to redo the vote in bessemer because there is too much tampering even within the very <laughs> pro business context of our current labor law yeah. they did a li- they went a little too far that says something right didn't they like they put in like their own mailbox for workers like they like a captive mailbox for workers to put their ballots into they're like use this one with like the amazon sign on it that's that'll make sure your ballot gets in there easiest yeah, they did. They did all kinds of shit. Yeah, they were like fucking with the traffic lights in the town because that was somehow, I forget what exactly that was supposed to do. But oh, the um, there's an injunction right now against the Alabama miners saying they can't even picket right now. The judge shut down their pickets. Wow. Well, see, this is where we get back to my idea of a nice, chill kind of strike, even general strike, where you look. You don't have to picket. All right. You don't have to put yourself in harm's way. You just stay home and you hang out on the Internet with all your fellow strikers and talk shit on your boss. And that's how we have like a nice chill strike in our pajamas. Might there be a hashtag involved, too? You think you could post about it? Sure. Absolutely. That sounds like the key. That sounds like the way forward. I have a really inspiring thing. Like uh, if if maybe you want to close out with it, we're at about an hour now. Sure. All right. So Pete, you asked, what, you know, what do you do? What do we do? What does the future look like? I have here, and this is from um, WSWS.org, folks, the Socialist Equality Party, those Critical trots. Critical support for the World Socialist website. They, uh, they have members who are in the John Deere factory. They have um, members who are in uh, other UAW plants, and they've been really doing really good coverage on this. Say what you want about trots, but you're like weird whatever the fuck Stalinist group out there is not uh, engaged in this struggle at all, and they are. So here we go. So this is a a letter from, an open letter from the John Deere Workers Rank and File Committee. Uh, This is obviously a bunch of workers with an independent workers organization, just like the Peter Maguire group, the people who have, some of the people who have been pushing against these concessions. So here we go. It says, reject UAW Deere blackmail. Expand the strike to win substantial gains in wages and retire for t- retirement benefits and take back our family lives. Dear brothers and sisters, after more than two weeks on strike, the United Auto Workers is trying to rush through another pro-company deal 
which ignores our demands for raises big enough to make up for 25 years of eroding wages, time off for our families, and fully paid retiree health benefits and pensions for all workers. To add insult to injury, the UAW is trying to pull another fast one like it did in 2015 by making us vote before we have time to sufficiently study and discuss the deal. They are telling us to vote Tuesday without access to the full contract and letters of agreement that will dictate our lives for the next six years. We are workers, not industrial slaves. The Dear Workers Rank and File Committee calls on workers to demand the release of the full contract and all side letters now and insist on a full week to study the contract before any votes. There is a growing strike wave in the U.S. and around the world. After we have risked our lives in COVID-infected factories to make the billionaires even richer during the pandemic, workers are saying enough is enough. We need substantial raises. We need security and retirement. We want our family lives back. We want say-so over health and safety and conditions in the factory and other places. And then it says, it talks about how the Wall Street Journal is really scared about them winning. The UAW bureaucrats are not worried that we could lose the strike if we continue, but that we would win it. This would prove to other workers that they could defy the lies and intimidation of the gangsters in the UAW and open the floodgates to overturn all the union-backed sweetheart deals at GM, Ford, Stellantis, Volvo, Caterpillar, Dana, and countless other locations. The Dear Workers Rank and File Committee was formed to unite all workers and lead the fight against the sabotage of the UAW. The committee has established lines of communication throughout the John Deere empire, including with workers in Germany and with auto and auto parts workers in the Midwest. We're in a powerful position to win this struggle, with Deere feeling the pressure of the lack of replacement parts in the harvest season and their earnings report due soon. We cannot allow the UAW to snatch victory from us. We urge all workers to reject the sellout deal and to join and expand the, the Deere Workers Rank and File Committee to unite with other workers to win our social rights. Hell yeah. So that's, yeah, that's tight. So, so who did that come from? The that, Rank and File the, Committee. So that was like a substantial portion of the rank and file and not just like some random trots trying to <laughs> impose their will. No, no. My understanding is like, I don't think there's like a majority of people who are in that, but there's like a, a militant core um, of looks like socialist communists or whatever within um, the plant who are pushing the line. You know, and and handing that shit out to people and continuing to put pressure on the company and also on the union in order to not sell them out again. I mean, even if you're a small group, that can have uh, tremendous implications for how things go down. Because, again, we're talking about, you know, what do we do? How do we unite these struggles together? If communists can be doing anything right now, it should be trying to unite these sort of disparate struggles that seem like, you know, at least to the people in them, that they don't have anything to do with one another uh, because our news media is only really good at like sucking off boomers with like six figure jobs and, and shit like that. There's not even really any reporting about what the bottom half of America thinks or feels or what's happening to them. You know, like the media is worse than bad at covering working class issues. It obfuscates them. It makes it so that we can't even know ourselves. We can't even see what's happening in, the, in, in like our working class communities around this country and around the world because the media is talking about the latest critical race theory thing or it's talking about what are these strikes going to do for Joe Biden's job approval or whatever. Like we, 
<clears throat> we can't wait for some media savior to come in and, and save us, right? We have to start doing it ourselves, and we have to start trying to connect these different struggles together, not just ideologically, you know, and not just with propaganda, but physically start to, like, uh, cohere something that is a, a movement, but as right now, tens of millions of workers, uh, but also somewhat disparate and disconnected. That's our job, really. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, I think our role, perhaps, as socialists and communists, um, unless we work in those shops, which, you know, some people do, I think the rank and file strategy, uh, I was very cynical about it at first, uh, and I've seen since then, you know, there are some DSA people who've gotten jobs in, in crucial industries, strategic industries, and are pushing, uh, they're running for positions in the union and they're pushing the militancy a little bit harder. Um, but like socialists outside of the shops, they can't make workers strike uh, if they can't just come in and say, hey, you guys should strike. Right. Um, they can't make workers fight their own unions. But what they can do is they can support the workers who are and they can you know go talk to like the the concept of a vanguard literally is like there are going to be some portions of the class that are more advanced that are more willing to fight right. and it's our job to talk to those people and help them out and support them in any way they can any way we can and help their numbers grow um because like i i do not see a path to socialism or to communism to overthrowing the wage system that does not run through uh, coordinated labor action. That's just, that's the power that the working class has, you know, yeah. for until they replace everybody with robots, the working class does all the work proletarians. They run the fucking world. And that is one more way in which capital sows the seeds of its own destruction as you know, from reading Marx, you know, it's like, Oh, thanks capitalism. Thanks for <laughs> bringing us all together as and teaching Lenin, us how to do all the work that runs the world. As Lenin uh, said, selling us the rope to, from with, uh, with which to hang them. Right. Yep. Yep. And you know, Oh, Hey, guess what? Maybe we don't need you after all. Like, why are we doing all the work uh, while you take all the profits and we can barely reproduce ourselves from day to day. So, yeah. Remember when we had angry workers on far before when they were canceled for their uh, spicy takes <laughs> online, but we had them on about uh, the book that they put out. <clears throat> and one of the things that they did was they went and listened and they went and analyzed and they, and they went and understood what was happening in the local struggles in their community. And just like the local industries, what's going on with the working class? What are their conditions and what are they feeling? And they went in and they like got this big compendium, like workers' inquiries of understanding what the actual conditions were, trying to tie together all these different little struggles that were happening. Because, folks, there's like little strikes that are happening all over the country, too. And there's little job actions like people walking off uh, the job at McDonald's over sexual harassment that we don't even really hear about. Because, again, the lying bourgeois press is not particularly interested in that stuff. But imagine if we had in, say, the United States, we had people in like every major community, uh, every major city in this country who was going down to workplaces, to retail, to logistics, uh, to production, and just simply asking what was going on. Uh, taking account of that, analyzing it, and then giving that back to the class. So people could say, oh, well, we're facing this in this particular workplace, and we feel lonely, and we feel isolated, and we feel powerless. You know, you could say, well, actually, people are feeling the same way up the street. 
And this is mm-hmm. not an individual thing. This is not just a bad boss. This is systemic. I mean, that's the sort of shit it would be beautiful to see start happening in this country. Even if you want a party, the party has to start with a nucleus. And I don't think that nucleus is going to be running somebody for president. If you really no, want to have not. an organic connection to the class, you have to understand what the class is going through. So I think it's a, it'd be an exciting opportunity. You heard it here first, guys. You got your assignment. Yep. Someone has to do it now. <laughs> we're already doing this podcast, so we're probably not going to. We'll be checking your homework uh, next month. That's right. No, no grading, though. We don't, communists don't believe in grading. No, we just want to make sure you're doing something. We go in these days I'm trying to paint my own wasted sweat on the killing me With freedom stays up where I am What do you do for a living? And how does it feel to watch the bombers rise? While people fall, patriots and comfort delusional Another time, another place For a better life than this rat race Our labor's lost, too many lifetimes wasted What we are